Revelation 21 is going to be our preaching text this morning. Revelation is the final book in the Bible. And we have two sermons left. And then you can all say you're experts in the book of Revelation. So we're going to be looking at the final second from last chapter, chapter 21. And these are really encouraging chapters because these paint a beautiful picture for us of heaven. In Revelation, there's some nasty stuff that we learn about that will take place in the future. But now we're into those final chapters. And I've sort of entitled this like Back to Eden, because in many ways, the final chapters of Revelation take us back to the opening chapters of Genesis, where God describes for us the paradise that he originally created for us to live in. And many of the the symbols, the language that we see in Genesis, especially Genesis 2 and 3, are recovered in the final chapters, lost because of sin, but recovered because of the Savior and his work for us. So I want to talk to you about heaven today because that's what the text is talking to us about. As we think about this word heaven, just consider for a moment how many different ways and how many different contexts the word heaven is used in. So in in our conversation with people or our our music or advertisements, you'll notice that the word heaven actually comes up time and time again. I want to kind of date myself. I'll go back a little bit to the day and age of Brian Adams. And let me just kind of read Maybe I'll even sing it. No, I'm just going to read it. A few lyrical lines out of one of his songs where he says, Baby, you're all that I want. When you're lying here in my arms, I'm finding it hard to believe we're in heaven. And love is all that I need. And I found it there in your heart. It isn't too hard to see we're in heaven. So evidently for for Brian Adams, when he experienced the red-hot passion of romance, for him, that's, that's heaven. Uh, other people, when the plate comes out, there's a nice big slice of chocolate cheesecake on it. It's like, man, I, now I'm in heaven. I'm in heaven right now. So maybe romance is your heaven. Maybe too many calories is your heaven. For others, it's Retirement. Oh, it's going to be heavenly. When I retire, finally, it'll, everything will be right. You know, the world will be stable and my life's just going to be super awesome because I'll be retired. Or maybe it's like financial security. You're just waiting for that big inheritance. You know, that rich single uncle. You're pretty sure your name and your name alone is in his will. And you're just waiting for the day when you get that big check. And you're like, it's going to be heavenly if I can just kind of increase my financial status. Now, these, these are good things. Nothing wrong with romance. Nothing, nothing wrong with cheesecake and moderation. But these things are not heaven. Heaven is much, 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 much more than that. And Revelation helps us to see what heaven really is like. Now, this is a big book. There's 66 books in the Bible. And if you started reading the first chapter today and just read all day, every day, you wouldn't be done next week unless you're a really, really fast reader. There's a lot of material here. And we do not receive from the Bible like a comprehensive view of like every detail 
that you could possibly ever ask about heaven. People ask questions about heaven that are kind of peripheral questions. You know, will I miss my loved ones that didn't make it? Will I recognize you in heaven? Will my dog be in heaven? Maybe if it's reincarnated as a white horse. We ask all these peripheral questions, and we can actually debate them and have some fun with them. But for some people, those are like the big questions for them. And I think they lose sight of the core doctrine or teaching about what heaven really is like. And we're going to be introduced to that today as we look at Revelation 21. So I'm just going to talk to you about six reasons why you'll want to be in heaven. We're going to look at some more in chapter 22, but chapter 21, we're going to see at least six reasons why you'll want to be in heaven. And here's the first one right out of the gates. Chaos ends. Finally, finally, all the chaos that we experience in this world will be done. Let me read it for you. Revelation 21.1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Now, those of you that like to go to the sea for your vacations, maybe you've been on a cruise, you're like, that, that kind of stinks. I like the sea. I like swimming in the sea. I like tanning by the seaside. I like scuba diving in the sea. I like doing cruises on the sea. I was sort of hoping that heaven would have like a Mediterranean type body of water there or the heavenly equivalent of the Atlantic Ocean or the Pacific Ocean. Like what's what's up with that? So we need to go back and kind of put ourselves, plug ourselves in to the mindset of a first century reader. In the scriptures, it's super clear that for Jews, the sea represented chaos. It's never spoken of positively. They were a land-loving people. They were not a seafaring people. The sea was a place of fear. The Leviathan hung out there. It was a place where your boat could sink, where you could die. It's a place of chaos. Sea equals chaos in the mind of the first century Jew and in many other nations that surrounded them. So when the biblical text speaks of a new heaven and a new earth, the first thing you need to understand is that we will not, contrary to the classical stereotypes, spend eternity in a disembodied state on a very white and fluffy cloud with a halo over our heads, plucking on a harp. Perhaps you grew up thinking that was heaven, and you're like, (laughs) I have to hold off on that one for a little while. That's not heaven. The Bible's clear that if we die today, we go to heaven if we know the Lord, but the eternal state is the new heavens and the new earth. It's like back to Eden. God is going to create a physical world for us to live in. And we will be recipients of a resurrected body. This body that I have will be resurrected and made new, and I will spend eternity with the Lord in that condition. 
And the second thing we see here in this text is that that place that we will live on will be without chaos. So think about the chaos that exists in our world. On the drive-in this morning, some of the kids in the back were talking about another, another shooting that took place south of the border. I think it was yesterday. Maybe there was one even the day before that. 20 lives lost. Now think about the state of our world when it seems like almost every day, if not weekly, maybe a couple weeks goes by in between, on the news, somebody gets out of bed in the morning and decides, I'm just going to go indiscriminately kill a bunch of people. Like, that's the world we live in. And so people are just needlessly dying because some nutcase decides they want to snuff out a bunch of people's lives. And then, after thousands of years of human civilization, we're still bombing each other. We're still blowing each other up. The, the idea of a nation sending an ambassador to another nation is not a modern idea. That's been going on for thousands of years, where ambassadors went as emissaries between one nation and the next. And we still haven't figured out how to get along. In spite of thousands of years of ambassadorships and political dialogue, there's still threats. Well, we're going to blow you up. Well, we'll blow you up. Our bombs are bigger than your bombs and back and forth and back and forth. People are still being raped. People are still having their belongings stolen. We've had at least two thefts while our building project's been going on where people have come and stole equipment and tools. It's a place of worship. But there's, there's no morals in the minds of many people. Children are being molested. Children and women in particular are being sex trafficked. This is the world we live in. And may, maybe in your little corner of the world, things are better than that. No, there's relative stability and relative peace. But if you look at the world around us, People talk about human progress and technological advancement. It's not getting better. It's not. Human beings are as depraved and wicked as they have ever been. And if you think this is heaven, (laughs) then you need a fresh vision of what heaven really is like. And in the eternal kingdom, we learn that political chaos ends. Economic chaos ends. Social chaos ends. Even geological chaos ends. No more earthquakes. No more, no more floods. None of that. It's all gone. And the imagery here is there will finally be peace on earth. True and abiding peace is what we all have to look forward to. Secondly, We experience God's full presence. Now, it's true that we see God through the eyes of faith working in our world, and we've encountered him, and we have relationship with him. But we still have to exercise faith. Faith is the hope of things not yet seen. It's not the same as wishing. There's a spiritual dynamic to it. There's a a realness to it. But in the heavenly kingdom, we will see God 
face to face. In fact, it might seem kind of strange to say this, but we won't really even need faith in heaven because we will be encountering that which is realer than real in the moment, face to face, for all of eternity. The full presence of God will for the first time be accessible to us. The Bible says in verse 2, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. So if that's not more than what we have now, I'm not sure why it would be there. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. The text uses the word dwell. This means to remain or live with. We will live with him and he will live with us. And this theme is picked up again in the 22nd verse where it says, and I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God, the almighty and the lamb. Now keep in mind, this is delivered to the church in the first century, kind of the tail end of the first century. So the old covenant had ended several decades before, but it was still in the memory of the first century believer. Old covenant just recently ended. And when you thought old covenant, and then you thought about where does God's presence reside, your mind would go to the temple. The, the zenith of God's presence was manifested in the temple. But you remember at the cross when the curtain was ripped in two from top to bottom? It symbolized greater access than the old covenant believer had for the new covenant believer. So now under the new covenant, we have the blessing of Pentecost. And from Pentecost forward now, we have a Holy Spirit who indwells us. Which, by the way, I always find that just an incredible doctrine to even consider that the God of the universe resides in me. I mean, it's... It's a fascinating thing to actually consider that the holy God of the universe resides in a little fleck of dust like me and like you. It's an amazing thing. And it's a huge blessing. And that means we have a redemptive historical advantage over the old covenant believer. But still, we exercise faith because we have not seen God face to face. But that changes in the eternal kingdom. There is no more temple. There is no more indwelling required because we will be in the actual full-fledged presence of God forever and ever and ever. So we talk about what's heaven going to be like? What are we going to do? What are some of the activities of heaven? Will I recognize my pals? And we're like, I don't know. Other people I know, they don't really know. We speculate about all of that. One person put it this way. I don't know who this person was, but I heard this a long time ago. They said, really what heaven is, is it's kind of an unknown region with a very well-known inhabitant. We might, may not be able to fully picture what it will be like in heaven, the surroundings, but we know who we're going to spend eternity with. 
the God that we've experienced in the here and now, we will experience him to an even greater degree in the eternal kingdom. And we will have 24 hour access to that God. There'll be no lines to wait in to have a conversation. Waiting here now for 10,000 years, a lot of people in front of me. Now we'll have access to God. And all of those visions that John had early in Revelation of staring through that portal into heaven and he sees God on the throne and there's the 24 elders and the four living creatures and the sea of glass and all of that. We will be in that place and have absolute access to God. Right now, we live by faith. And by the way, we have to exercise faith. It's not enough to just intellectually assent to the gospel to the existence of God. We must exercise faith in order to persevere. We must trust that the God who has accomplished time and time again, what he said he would accomplish will continue to accomplish that which he says he will accomplish. We need to walk by faith. Faith is the antidote to apostasy. You drop faith and you're inevitably going to apostatize. We must exercise ongoing Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is something, by the way, this is a sermon within the sermon that I was discussing with our elders council this week in that increasingly we have stories coming out of high-ranking prominent Christian leaders abandoning Christianity. Maybe you heard of Joshua Harris who many years ago wrote a very well-known best-selling book called I Kissed Dating Goodbye. Well, this past week he came out and he's kissing Jesus goodbye. He's abandoning, he has abandoned not only his wife, but he's abandoned the Christian faith. It's like, I'm, I'm not, this is a guy who has preached the word of God all over the place, who has impacted the church of Jesus Christ. Now he's like, no, I'm not a Christian. I'm out of here. And he's not the only one on the list. There are many other people we could name who have abandoned Christianity. Like, how can that be? If, if a person is saved once and for all, then here's what's shocking about these stories. If you're not saved now, guess what? You weren't saved then. How is it possible then for a minister of the gospel to have preached the word of God with conviction and passion, but to have never actually been converted. How is that possible? One of the clues that help us to answer this question is found in 2 Timothy 3.7. And this is just something I was reading in my devotional life this week, and it just kind of jumped out at me. The whole, the whole chapter there is, is, is pretty, pretty awesome, pretty convicting. But it says in 2 Timothy 3.7, of some... Listen to this. They are always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just mull that one over a little bit. Always learning. So they're reading God's word. They're asking good questions. They're arriving at good answers. They know truth. They can defend truth. They can plant truth-oriented churches. Some of them can pastor 
those churches. Some of them will have global influence over the church. They're always learning. But then it says, and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. What does that mean? How can you learn something but not arrive at a knowledge of the truth? Well, I think what's going on there is that the reference to knowledge is a different kind of knowing than learning is. Learning is the accumulation of truth. But arriving at a knowledge of the truth involves an intersection of the mind and the soul or the heart. See, it's one thing to know something cerebrally to be true, to to buy into a system, biblical Christianity, for instance. And to say, I love biblical Christianity. It answers all my questions. It's consistent. It's clear. It's livable. It's pragmatic. It's convictional. I love the community of believers that are part of that. It's one thing to be to be an adherent to a system, and it's another thing to have arrived at a knowledge of the truth to allow it to cleanse you, to wash over you, to convict you, to own you, to master you. And this is what we're going for as believers. You know, in the scriptures, you can know someone, and then you can know someone sexually, intimately. That's a different kind of knowing. And the same applies to God. It's not sufficient to know about God. It's not sufficient to give intellectual assent to what God has said. True knowledge of God involves faith. And faith is not wishy-washy. Oh, I hope it's true. Faith is allowing it to grip you. Staking your life on it. Believing it beyond the mind. Allowing it to infect your soul and your spirit and transform you. So this is a bit of a warning to us. That we need to make certain that we are not just people that have given intellectual assent to a system that happens to be preferable to other systems of belief. But that we arrive at a knowledge of the truth. That we appropriate it. That we practice it. That we allow it to infect us. In ever increasing measure, I might add. So that we might truly be transformed by the word of God. This is biblical faith. In chapter 22, verse 4, it says, They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Two things about that. Never before in scripture are we told that we can actually see God face to face. God's beauty and power and holiness is so magnificent that to see him face to face, you just like evaporate. People are like, I won't believe in God unless I see him. Okay, well, basically what you're saying is I won't believe in God unless he kills me. Because no man can see God and live. But in the eternal kingdom, finally, in our sanctified state, with our perfect bodies, God will allow us to see him face to face. And then second, he will own us. And this is figurative, I believe. It says his name will be on our foreheads. This harkens back to the beast. The beast of Revelation earlier was that antithesis to God, that hater of God, that enemy of God, be it a system or an individual. 
And he also proclaimed ownership over those that followed him by marking them on the foreheads. Here we have God speaking of his ownership over us in the eternal kingdom by putting his name on our foreheads. This is the second blessing that we look forward to in heaven. The third is this, suffering stops. Tears here are symptomatic of all pain, all suffering, all crying that we might experience in this world. And then John encourages us with these words, verse four, he will wipe every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Like praise God for that. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The former things have died. No longer will we cry for ourselves. No longer will we cry for other people. There will be no more funerals to mark our days. I'm fully anticipating that my dear, sweet, godly grandmother will go to be with the Lord this weekend. She might have passed already, but I asked my family not to tell me until I'm done preaching. But I believe she will die in the next couple of days. And we will mourn that. Even though we know where she's going, we will mourn that. And that's not the way God created the world. He created the world for us to live forever. But because of our sin, we know we will go to funerals. And we know friends will die of cancer. And people's lives will be lost in car accidents. But the day will come when there will be no more funerals, no cancer, no diabetes, no suicides, no ulcers, no buildings collapsing on people, no abuse of any sort. In heaven, all of those things that make us sad will come to an end. And this is why, folks... Regardless of how it all works in heaven, we will not mourn those who have been left behind. Because there will be no mourning in heaven. So however that works, and I don't know how it works. But we will mourn nothing related to the former order of things because it will pass away. Now in this world, again, we experience suffering. You will suffer. So newsflash to those of you that may not be Christians that are considering surrendering yourselves to the claims of Christ. Don't let any current Christian ever tell you the reason why you should follow Christ is because your life will get better. It's not true. It might get worse. How's that from marketing the faith? It might get worse. You'll be better off, but your life might not be better. It might get worse. There might be more suffering. There might be more hardship. There might be persecution you've not, never experienced before. We will suffer. But one of the things that I've noticed is that in our humanness, when something doesn't go right in this world and we, we start to accuse God or admonish God or blame God, I was talking to a friend of mine this week who doesn't know Jesus, and I was explaining this very thing, struggling with some things in life. I said, you know, when you blame God, life never gets better. It doesn't get better. 
doesn't make you feel better when you blame God. I mean, I don't know why you're suffering. I don't, I don't know why. God doesn't always give us the answer. There's like 50 some odd chapters in Job. There's extended dialogues between Job and his friends about the age-old question of why God allows suffering. And nowhere in that extended corpus of Scripture is there the answer to the question why God allowed for Job's children to be taken. The question is never answered. Isn't that amazing? It's a book about suffering. How could you not come to a conclusion? Nobody has a, a conclusion. But what God does is he offers his presence. And in his presence, in his declaration that he's the one that laid the foundations of the earth, he's the beginning and the end. He's in charge of everything. It's that reminder that in his presence, there is peace. So Job's able to move forward. The question is never answered why. And yet Job is retreaded and he, he's thrust back into a life of worship for many years because he encountered the sovereign God who knows best. And this is true of all of our suffering. This is a massive lesson because in our humanity, when we experience suffering, we will be tempted to believe the lie that the serpent planted in Adam and Eve's ears. God is holding out on you. It's not really good. It's not really good. He's holding out on you. It's like God is a cosmic killjoy. That's basically the essence of the temptation in Genesis. But it's in the presence of God it's in his presence when you're overwhelmed with his sovereignty and his majesty. You're like, you know what? I actually don't even care why anymore. I'm just kind of feeling a lot of satisfaction with the who. And this is the essence of it all. And so this is what makes heaven like super awesome. Not so that we can line up and say, hey, Lord, I got this list. People say, oh, when you get to heaven, you can ask God all your questions. I don't think I'll have any questions of God when I get to heaven. Not a single one. But I was taught that. You know, when you get write all those questions down, hey, Lord, uh, can you... Can you explain this text to me a little more clearly? Oh, Lord, why did you allow that to happen? I don't think I'm going to be asking God any questions. Just be totally and absolutely satisfied in his presence. There will be no confusion, no chaos, no frustration, no pain, only feelings of joy, no regrets. Those feelings are part of the former world. Here's the fourth one. In heaven, there will be perpetual life. And he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. Alpha and omega, that's like the first letter and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. That's like our A and our Z. And it commun- it's applied to God to remind us that God is the beginning and he's the end of all things. He's the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And when he invites us to be his sons, he's inviting us to eternal life or perpetual life in his kingdom. We will have birthday after birthday after birthday after birthday to celebrate. If you want to profitable business in heaven, you'll go into selling birthday cakes and candles. 
Because there will be some very large, hey, I'm celebrating my millionth birthday today in heaven. My trillionth birthday today in heaven. We will live in the presence of God and the new heavens and the new earth forever and ever and ever. Now, as creatures of time, I don't know about you, but I've actually tried to think about eternity. Have you ever tried that? Like, what's it like? So you, you think like a hundred years out and a thousand, then you try to comprehend 10,000. After a while, your brain starts to go kind of screwy because we don't have the capacity to think about eternity because we've never experienced it. I'm dying. You're dying. Everything's decaying. It's falling apart. We go to Europe. We're like, wow, a thousand-year-old building. We don't have any of those in Canada. It's not very old. Go to the pyramids. They're thousands of years old. Look how old they are. That's not very old by heavenly standards. We don't have the capacity to comprehend eternity, but it's real and Here's what we need to do. We must allow at least our meager comprehension of eternity to affect us in the here and now. It's not enough to know it. It's not enough to preach it. It's not enough to believe it. We have to allow eternity to affect us. So here's how this works. If you get 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years out of this life, you're going to be, okay, well, I'm old, I'm like really old, or I died young, or anywhere in between. But what you need to understand is however long you live, even if you're on the far end, this is just like a, a, a moment of time jammed, wedged between two eternities. And what you do with that little fleck of time makes all the difference for the eternity to come. So an intelligent person can only arrive at one conclusion. I need to use this life well. I need to steward this life well. I don't want to squander it. I don't want to waste a day, a week. It doesn't mean like every moment of every hour you're out directly preaching the gospel. You got to get showers. You got to eat. You got to cut the grass. You know, you got to pay the bills. Most of our faith was lived out in the mundane but overarching all that is a clear knowledge of eternity. There is a life that is to come. And we're so often distracted by that. We could say that really all sin boils down to a disbelief that God is good and or forgetfulness about heaven. Really? Where we start thinking, oh, what really matters is that relationship or that next degree or that promotion or that vacation or that retirement. Now, I've experienced a lot of awe. I was just thinking about this today, how many blessings I've received in life. But they're all, hear this, let me just save you a whole lot of headache, especially those of you that are younger than me. Everything you look forward to in life is anticlimactic. If it is not received as a blessing from God, and if you do not couch it, with a clear view of eternity. It's all anticlimactic. I remember thinking, oh, when I get married, like I'm going to have arrived. When I have my first kid, my first kid reaches adulthood. When I earn my doctorate, when I, you know, when the church is up and running, it's all anticlimactic. It's like, oh, okay, this is good. But now I need something else to satisfy me. And now I need something else to satisfy. It's all anticlimactic. You know what I'm talking about? It's not that it's bad, but it's, it's not quite what you thought it would be. 
And yet we just keep going to the well and pulling up another bucket. Oh, if I just, another bucket, another bucket. Uh, take a drink. Okay, it's fine. But it's just, it's kind of, it still doesn't satisfy. I'm thirsty again the next day. But when we learn to receive the, the pleasures of life as blessings from God, but also just realize they are just, they're just temporary gifts. And I want to keep my eyes that clearly focused on eternity. It just makes, it makes a huge difference. So I, I don't know, to be honest with you, I don't even know how it's possible to live with any true abiding sense of worth or value if you don't have heaven in mind. Like people talk about depression. It's kind of a buzzword. I know there's different reasons for it, but I am not, I'm surprised that more people aren't depressed. I'm surprised there aren't more suicides. I'm surprised there aren't more people like just going nuts. Because we're made in the image and likeness of God. And we abandon that innate sense that there has to be something more. And instead we choose to satisfy ourselves with you know, the latest marriage or the latest deal you know, or the, the latest whatever. <laughs> it, it, it just doesn't have the capacity to satisfy us. But God does, and he will in increasing measure. Perpetual life. Then we have perpetual perfection. You might even want to like close your eyes to kind of hear this. Now, i got to keep my eyes open because so i got to read it. But this is like a vision within the vision. So he's, he's, John's having this vision, but then within the vision, he has a vision. And he's taken away, and he's, he's given a, some insight into heaven. Verse 10 says, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. So notice the the language here, trying to describe it. It had a great high wall, so that speaks of security, with 12 gates. 12 is the other number for perfection in Genesis. 7 and 12 are numbers of perfection. And at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the numbers of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed on the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, on the west, three gates. This probably mimics the way Israel would camp out in the Sinai desert where they would have the the tabernacle in the middle and you'd arrange like three tribes to the north, south, east, west. That's how their, their encampments were always arranged at night. So this is kind of like a an eternal picture of that. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Now we know that the church, the present church, is founded, one could say, on the teachings of the apostles. This is why we don't use the word apostle lightly. It's, it's kind of, I've noticed in the last 10 years, people talk about the gift of apostleship. No. The gift of apostleship is reserved for the first century. Apostles are reserved for the first century. These were men that had seen the risen Christ and been commissioned by God to bind us to revelatory truth. So if you mess with that word, theoretically at least, you can just start adding more foundational documents to the Bible. Apostles were first century individuals, 
And the 12 apostles form the foundation of the church. They're called the cornerstones of the church, meaning their teachings were foundational to the future of the church. By the way, a cornerstone in a temple weighs around 100 tons. So there's just like a weighty kind of significance to this kind of description here. And then we have the beauty of the place, the walls built of jasper. The city was pure gold, clear as glass. Now, again, it's metaphor. So don't be like, oh, I just found an error in the Bible. You can't see through gold. Gold's not clear. How can it be gold and clear all at once? Okay, it's figurative language. It's apocalyptic language. Our eyes and ears cannot even fathom what it must truly be like, but it's, it's trying to describe for us here to accommodate us. The foundations of the wall of a city were adorned with every kind of jewel. And then verse 21 says, and the street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. So again, different images used here, but all of them are beautiful. They're precious. And they speak of the beauty of God, black asphalt, hot and sticky, replaced with gold. Stones that we walk on replaced with jewels. There's beauty there. These images call us to long for heaven, to be attracted to heaven, to to take our eyes off the black asphalt of life and to focus on the beauty of things that are to come. D.L. Moody, famous preacher, 100 years ago or whatever it might have been, told this this fable of uh, a swan that met a crane. So, you know, the, a crane, little spindly little legs. And the, the crane is out, and he's, he's by the edge of this muddy river. And he's going along, and he's searching through the mud for snails. And he's eating these snails as he goes. And he's quite, quite fixated on this. And then out of heaven, this beautiful swan descends. And the crane and the swan enter into a dialogue. And the crane starts out, and he says, oh, where are you from? And the swan says, I'm from heaven. And the crane says, where's that? I've never heard of the place. And the swan says, I can't believe you never heard of heaven. And he starts to describe heaven and the gold streets and the beauty of the place and God on the throne. And he describes the crystal clear river that runs through heaven and the sea of glass compared to this muddy river that the crane is in it. He's going on and on describing all the beauty and the grandeur of heaven, but the crane really isn't listening. He just has one question. Guess what his question is? But are there any snails in heaven? And the swan says, no, you don't need to worry about eating snails in heaven. And the crane then says, well, then you can have your heaven. Because I... I want to go back to eating my snails. And, and you, you know where this is going. In the here and now, it's like we get used to eating snails from the muddy, murky water. That's normal for us. We're like, this is normal. You know, it's normal to get up with an achy back. It's normal to get divorced. It's normal to go to funerals. It's normal to hear of school shootings. It's, it's normal to get cancer. It's normal to not trust people. It's normal to be abandoned. This is normal. And after a while, we're like, we, we kind of like this. We kind of like our snails. And we take our eyes off of the beauty of the heavenly kingdom. And this seems normal to us. 
Shamefully, shockingly, how many of us in this room would have to admit, sometimes we're like, oh Lord, could you maybe delay coming back? Because we're kind of liking it right now. We've all had that thought. And this depiction of heaven's beauty is meant to kind of cl- clean that up, clean that, those lies out. Finally, we have perpetual light. Anybody here, have you ever been afraid of the dark or at least wary of going out in the dark from the time you were a child till now? Anybody? You know, I've, I've always been amazed how many liars come to church. Okay? There's like eight of you, right? Several hundred people. I'm never scared of the dark. No, never thought about that. We've all been at some point, okay, either as children, like, I don't really like the dark, or even as adults, like, I just don't feel quite as safe at night. So these, these robberies I was telling you about that we've had from the construction site, they take place at night. We have cameras on the building now. Guy pulls up his van, loads in all these materials. Doesn't come in the middle of the day. He'll get caught. You walk down like the dark alley at night, you're looking behind your back. In the daytime, no problem. Because people commit a lot of heinous acts at night because you can't see as well in the dark. A lot of predators hunt at night. So dark equals insecurity, fear. When I was a little kid, I remember laying in bed. I was scared at night. This little window over my bed. I had this little Snoopy doll. And I had this nightmare. This giant Snoopy came through the window and big teeth and was trying to eat me, right? Cowered under my blanket. I was scared of the dark. And in the eternal kingdom, there's perpetual light. Here's what it says. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light. The sun provides a measure of safety, not just in the form of warmth, but in light. But it's kind of a surrogate to God. But in the eternal kingdom, there's no sun. God gives it light, and its lamp is the lamb, and by its light will the nations walk which is super awesome because that means the Great Commission will be fulfilled. The people of all ethnic stripes will come into the eternal kingdom. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. All nations will be safe under the care of God in the eternal kingdom. In our culture, people often talk about being inclusive, but for most of the time, inclusive means tolerating and even promoting sinful choices. We're inclusive. You can do and say and go wherever, whatever you want. And we're just like, that's good on you. There's freedom. The Bible, God is inclusive too. But he's inclusive in a pure way. He is going to include in his eternal kingdom people from all nations and walks of life. Even the rich, the kings of the earth will bring their glory to the Lord and surrender themselves to the king of kings and the Lord of lords. This is the radical inclusion that the gospel promises under Christ. So as we now have experienced just this beginning look, there's one more chapter, but this beginning look about heaven. I want to ask you two simple questions as we conclude. Number one, do you believe in heaven? Do you believe in heaven? And secondly, 
If so, do you live with heaven in view? If you're not living with heaven in view, you may have discovered this morning the source of so many of your problems. But you've also discovered the solution to so many of your problems. Fix your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. This is the hope that we have. This is the way that we should live. So let's live that way, church. Church. 